This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, a Spectator's Daily Politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Kate Andrews. And we've just heard from the Chancellor who has unveiled his budget and the spending review. Kate, to begin with, uh, you've written on Coffee House about the various news ads that struck you the most. Can you give us a quick run through? Sure. Well, the rabbit out of the hat was the uh, change to the universal credit taper. It's been reduced by 8%. So it means that once you hit that work allowance, uh, rather than losing 63% of every pound that you earn after that, you're losing 55%. It's still quite high, but it's a meaningful difference. It means that your average person will be keeping 8p extra from whatever they're earning. And the chancellor said in his speech that he estimates that a family of four Two parents, two kids, one working full-time, one working part-time could be looking at saving up to or having in their pocket up to close to £2,000 extra a year. So really quite meaningful difference. And I would say that think tanks, academics from the left and the right have been calling for a change to this. You know, it is a stealth work tax and it's a tax on those who are most financially vulnerable and at the lowest end of the income spectrum. So it's good to see movement there. It sounds like we're all going to be going to the pub more because the chancellor uh, has brought in this draft relief, which is going to cut the price of certain uh, draft beers by 5%. And it's estimated to take 3p off of every pint that's pulled for you. And this is his way of basically saying, here are the Brexit dividends, or at least here's one. We're going to change the way that we tax alcohol in this country, which we couldn't do when we were in the EU. We're going to simplify it and we're going to make it based on alcohol content as opposed to some very particular prescription. I mean, there was a lot in this budget. We can go into growth figures. We can certainly go into the 0.7% foreign aid target that's returning. But I would say the top headline was that, as expected, the Chancellor was on a really fine balancing act here between having to show that he was willing to spend because that's what the prime minister wanted to see. He didn't want any accusations of the return of austerity. And given the fact that the spending review has resulted in 150 billion pounds worth additional funds going to departments, that's going to be pretty hard to do. But he ended the speech on a very fiscally conservative note saying he's deeply disappointed that he can't cut taxes further yet. He thinks it's the right thing to hold out, but it's his plan to do it. Uh, He doesn't want the government to do everything. But at this point, that was mostly, apart from the UC change, words. It was rhetoric. So the question is whether or not over the next few years he can put it into action. James, when it comes to the theme of this budget, it feels so far in terms of the reaction that uh, some have been taken aback by levels of spending. If you think about how Rishi Sunak's been talking about restraint, getting back on a path of fiscal responsibility, some of the announcements, is it that he just had more money to play with in the end? So he does have more money to play with because the OBR think that the scarring to the economy from COVID is less than they thought. And borrowing has come in because the economy has rebounded faster, reopened more quickly than I think the OBR had previously expected. I think what is interesting is what he set up at the end of the speech, because as Kate says, he's talking about cutting taxes. He's saying he wants to cut taxes by the end of this parliament. Now, this parliament is going to end in 2023 or 2024. That That is soon. And the only way he is going to be able to do that is if there is no more spending other than what was announced today. And I think some of the settlements will actually look tighter like, for example, on education, when you look into the detail than they sounded in the speech. And the other factor, as the OBR makes quite clear, is what is going to happen to inflation and interest rates. At the moment, he's got 
0.6% of GDP is headroom. Now, that sounds a lot, but that is less than what previous chancellors have had in terms of meeting their fiscal rules, and they haven't managed to meet their fiscal rules. So I, I think that is one of the, the big questions. I think the, I wonder whether, though, there is a view that the OBR will further reduce their view on how much scarring COVID has done to the economy. Because if that is the case, then I think that you do begin to have a bit more room to play with. And I mean, the question is whether that money is now prioritised for tax cuts or more spending. And really quickly on inflation, looking into the OBR's um, write-up, it, it does seem worse than what was actually mentioned in the budget. So the OBR thinks that inflation will peak next year around 4.4%, but it's very clear that they would swing to the upside. And based on news, since they had to you know, close down their forecast, they actually think it could be closer to 5%. So it's it's pretty because this forecast isn't taking in the big spike in energy prices that has happened in uh recent weeks and kate in terms of the spending that has been that's how generous is it actually because uh we've seen lots of comparisons saying you know, this is the end of the david cameron george osborne era of austerity you saw a tendency by rishi sunet when he was talking for example about uh education spending per pupil that were going back to 2010 levels um so a clear idea that you're kind of uh, leaving that era behind. But when we look at the exact figures, is it as uh, you know big as people are making out? Well, Paul Johnson uh, from the IFS on Twitter made the excellent point that to brag about going back to 2010 levels isn't necessarily the win you think it is because it suggests that there hasn't been any uplift for a decade. So look, a, a lot of it is generous. I mean, it's a pretty heavy spending budget. Yes, lots of it's capital spending. And yes, a lot of it was already briefed around the National Health Service and the rest of it. But I think to return to the 0.7% foreign aid spend, I mean, that was pretty unexpected and not something that you do if you feel like you really have to continue to tighten the budget. But I I think what my bigger question is, you know, you can spend all this money, what are people going to feel in the short term? And we know that the NHS waiting list is going to get worse before it gets better. It's not obvious that this huge increase of the NHS is something now it's like 177 billion pounds up from 123, not all that long ago. It's not obvious that your average patient's actually going to feel that increase. What they are likely to feel is how the economy is doing, you know, whether or not we're growing, whether or not their wages are going up. And a few interesting numbers to flag on that. I mean, this year and next year, growth is really impressive, 6.5%. This year, it's 6% next year. Now, of course, a lot of that's recovery, but 6% growth in 2022 should be felt by your average person. I mean, that's prosperity. That's all of our lives getting better. Then it starts to go back down, and by 2025, you're back at 1.6%. I mean, this is back to the 2010 levels of pretty mediocre, pretty stagnant growth. You know, I think there are questions for the Tory party as to what they might want to do, where their political wriggle room is, while growth is quite good. But as well, over the next five years, that real household disposable income is only expected to rise by under 1% because of inflation, because of this tight squeeze that we're going to have on energy bills and the rest of it. So you can say things are getting better and you can say you're spending a lot of money and that may all be true. But the question for the Tory party is have they put their resources in the right place so people really feel it? Now, I want to get onto universal credit in a bit more detail, but before we do, James, just touching on Kate's comments. Is that the risk of Rishi Sunak and ultimately Boris Johnson's government that they're talking about um, putting lots of money into public services, but ultimately the cost of living crisis that we're going to be facing means that a lot of people might just not feel as though their lives are particularly improving. Yeah, so obviously the big risk is that inflation is high and it outstrips wage growth. So people are getting bigger pay packets, but 
the cost of goods are going up, so they're actually worse off. And then I think the second point is, are they going to get value for money for all of this extra cash that they are pumping into the health service? I think it's quite interesting if you look at the spending review. The Treasury are introducing a whole array of metrics designed to kind of measure whether you are actually getting bang for your buck in terms of this extra spending. And there's a big thing in there about how the new number 10 delivery unit is going to be kind of keeping an eye on whether these metrics are being kept to. And I think it's an attempt by the centre to try and have some accountability for this money. But I think one of the challenges is twofold. First of all, look at the fact that the head of number 10 delivery unit is currently seconded back to uh, the vaccine rollout because of the trouble that has got into. And then secondly, I think there is a difficulty for the Tory party because it has decided to elevate the NHS as in its kind of role as the national religion. And I think that makes it quite hard to be tough on NHS performance. And I also think that if you look at the Simon Stevens has been replaced by his deputy, Amanda Pritchard. You are essentially, you know, that, that is, Amanda Pritchard was not a change candidate for running the NHS. And I think the, but I think the big question here is, you know, can you use all these things like data which should allow you to provide better public services? Can you do that? There was an amazing statistic the other day, Kate will correct me if I might go wrong, but I think a fifth of NHS trusts are still largely paper-based. Oh yeah, was Which is absolutely yeah. staggering. And you, there, is, there is obviously some ways in which you can reform these public services so that you're getting more value for the money that you're putting into them. But I think whether they, whether they have the capacity to do that remains to be seen. And James, uh, just briefly, you've written about the changes to the universal credit taper rate on Coffee House. Why do you think it's so significant? I think it is so significant because it is, first of all, this is his kind of first instalment of the tax cuts that he is promising. Secondly, I think it is an interesting choice for the first tax cut. It is essentially saying that he wants to make sure that work pays. And if you think back in, in 2009, David Cameron, Tory Commons said, look, we ran an election in 1979 on the 98% marginal tax rate faced by the richest in society, and we got really angry about that. We now need to get really angry about the 96% marginal tax rates faced by the poorest in society as they move from welfare into work. Universal Credit did make some progress in reducing that, so it, the, the, the penalty for working with the marginal tax rate that people on UC were facing was lower. But the Treasury uh, under George Osborne was alarmed by the cost of UC, and so they kept this withdrawal rate very high. And that's why you know, you've got this 63p rate, which is, you know, that's a higher marginal rate than people earning £150,000 a year. Pay. It's really obscene. Yeah. yeah. And I think this reduction to 55p is progress on that, and I think it means that if you are working full-time on UC, as the figures that Kate was saying, it essentially cancels out or possibly leaves you better off than the £20 uplift in universal credit that the government withdrew earlier in the autumn. There was a big row about it, people saying, what are you doing? I think this is this government essentially saying, yeah, no, the, the people who are working on UC, we are, we are essentially finding another way to give them that back. I think there is going to be a very interesting question as to whether they come back to this UC take rate. I still think it is just frankly just wrong that some of the poorest people in society face a higher marginal tax rate than, than top rate taxpayers. Now Kate let's talk about foreign aid because the Chancellor uh, at the dispatch box ultimately said that this would be coming back moving back from 0.5 to 0.7 at the recovery state on track by the end of this parliament. Why is that according to his new fiscal rules and uh, when it comes to the politics behind that do you, what do you think he's trying to say? 
Well, basically, he's he's met his fiscal rules, and as James mentioned, he has significantly uh, more room to maneuver because public borrowing hasn't been anywhere near as high as expected. This year alone, the OBR now estimates that it will be 50 billion less that we borrow than what they even thought we were going to borrow in March. And over the next four years, they estimate we're going to borrow 180 billion pounds less. Now, to be clear, this is not found money. This is borrowed money, and I think the Chancellor is acutely aware of that. So you don't casually just start throwing it around. It, it isn't really money to spend, it's money to borrow. But it's still a really different situation, a far more comfortable one than we were in even six months ago. I think whatever you might think of the 0.7% or 0.5% or how foreign aid money is spent entirely, What's interesting about it is that the Chancellor, the way he originally framed the cut, as you say, Katie, was we can't afford this right now, but I'm promising you I'm going to come back to it. Now that he thinks he can afford it, he's come back to it. Let's think about what that might mean for some of his other pledges, the ones he made today, this rallying cry, this conservative call to arms to eventually get to tax breaks, the promises that he made around fiscal responsibility, which he really stuck to at party conference. He was one of the only ministers going around saying, actually, well, he didn't explicitly say we're not the party of low tax, but he wasn't pretending that the Tory party right now is. He was the one going around saying we need to be fiscally responsible. So I think in an interesting way, by returning to this quite generous policy that will make a lot of people on the left much happier than people on the right, it's also a principle he's setting out, which is, by the way, guys, I also told you that I was going to get stricter about spending. I told you that this is a new era in which you can't just ask the government for everything. And he said it um, really nicely today. He said, you know, the government should have limits. If this seems like a controversial statement to make, then I'm all the more glad for saying it. I think he's gearing us up for the things that he had to change or the emergency spending that he had to do throughout his whole tenure in the Treasury so far is something he wants to roll back. So. He's brought the 0.7% back, but also we should be prepared for operating in normal circumstances yet again, where you can't just ask the Chancellor for all the money you want. Now, James, when will we know if this is a successful budget for Rishi Sunak? It's around this point that some budgets start to unravel. Uh, the day two story, if you're yeah, thinking back perhaps to George Osborne, Omni Shambles, Pasty Tax, you know, things can start to come out. So when do you think there'll be a sigh of relief in the Treasury or panic? So one thing that has been changed, I think it's a good change, is the Office for Budget Responsibility now comes out of its assessment of the budget straight away. And I think if you think back to the Gordon Brown days, often the, those budgets look great on Thursday, Friday, and then in the Sunday papers, when people have had time to go through it, the horrors were found. Now the OBR sets out what the horrors are up front. In the executive summary, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but I don't think any Treasury relaxes until the Sunday papers have gone in terms of you know, what the rows are. I also think it is interesting, you know, there were quite a few concessions to political reality as well in this. You know, the f- fuel duty is frozen yet again because you know, with petrol pumps prices at record highs, increasing fuel duty would be brave in the yes minister sense of the word. Yes, there's a kind of alcohol tax relief redesignation. Yes, so I obviously don't drink red wine above 11%. So I think, I think it's- it out. I, <laughs> you correct me? No, I think, it's, I, think it, I think we're all meant to drink Northern European Reds because basically Southern European Reds are stronger and so I think more likely to go over. I'm just to say, very broken this down. Yeah, it's the 
piece of the budget, which I'm, I'm less happy about, but as you were saying, James. But, and then, but, and I thought it was interesting, there was kind of one kind of slightly comedy moment, I thought, when they were very keen to emphasise that the, the reduction in the duty on sparkling wine was on Prosecco, when it obviously is also a reduction in the duty on champagne. But I think it was thought to be slightly less. But so I don't, I, I, I think the bigger challenge is what do inflation and interest rates do to the limited headroom that he has. And I think that, you know, if you think back to the interview that the new uh, Bank of England chief economist gave, I think if you are looking at interest rates being t- 4%, twice the target, you know, next inflation. summer, sorry, inflation being 4%, twice the target level that the Bank of England has set, I think it's highly likely that in those circumstances the banks raise rates at least a little bit. That is going to have some implications for the public finances, the cost of a government's debt and the like. And so I think that that is the biggest risk. The biggest risk is, is the general inflationary environment around at the moment. And are we moving into an era of structurally higher energy prices? That is going to have an impact, obviously. Can I, can I just highlight one horror Cause that we already know about? Because again, OBR executive summary, very helpful on this. The tax take as a percentage of GDP was around 33% pre-pandemic. Now, I'm not terribly comfortable with that. We're talking about a third of the UK's GDP. It's a pretty high percentage. Come 2026-27, it's going to be over 36%. I mean, this is a government that is growing. And I did find it interesting that until we got to his rallying conservative cry at the end, Rishi Sunak kept gearing up, I thought, to say something, you know, really quite supply-side reform, really pro-economy, like we need economic growth, we need to stimulate the economy, and then we just kept falling to government intervention, more government spending, more government intervention. And I do think that quite this stark change and the fact that, you know, the tax take is only going up just highlights the fact that this is not a government that plans to rely on the market all that much. It's, it's one that thinks that the hand of the state is going to be uh, far more powerful in achieving its aims. And, um, well, I think that's a horror. But Kate, Rishi Sunak did, uh, when he was giving his you know, rallying cry, talk about company bailouts and say we cannot just bail out company after company, which to me, uh, maybe I'm being cynic, seemed to be a little bit of a dig at the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, given that uh, when we had that briefing, um, I would say a briefing, right, but it was just one hostile treasury briefing and not much back, um, suggesting Kwasi Kwarteng spoke out of turn when he was talking about being in discussions with Treasury on bailout money related to energy hikes. Um, did you pick up similar to me there? Look, I think it's a very legitimate speculation. And uh, the fact that uh, we didn't really get much of that in the budget sounds like those conversations have very much been quelled. It was telling that the budget was more about the dividends of Brexit than it was about COVID and not the consequences of COVID, which we're still you know, piling money into the NHS. Education will be getting a payout, even if it's not as generous as they might like and the rest of it. But it was very clear that for Sunak, COVID is the emergency state is a thing of the past. Now, how you want to square that with the fact that the whole cabinet front bench by the end, not the beginning, was wearing masks indoors. Keir you know, Starmer was not there. Keir was not there because he had COVID. So, you know, you can, you can make of that what you will. Maybe it's slightly too optimistic. But the idea that businesses will continue to be able to knock on the Treasury's door and say, we are in emergency circumstances and we need money now is something that he really, really wants to quell. And I don't know, Katie, perhaps it was a, a bit of a dig or maybe just the silence on bailouts completely until that one moment. Maybe that says it all. 
And finally, a uh, final question to you, Kate. So there's another rivalry looking at what's starting to unravel already. Now, maybe this is a rather treasure you want to have, but talk us through air passenger duty and COP26. So we have had a tax break and a tax hike in this budget around air passenger duty. For flights within the UK, you're going to get a break on your air passenger duty. And for flights within, uh, sorry, for flights internationally, uh, those that are considered long haul, I think over 5,000 miles, something like that, uh, they're going to set a new rate and you're going to pay a premium on your air passenger duty. Now, I don't know, I find it quite odd that in a country that is the size of the UK, where you can travel quite easily by train. I think there are lots of reasons to want to fly, but if you're going into COP26 and you're the world leader and you're talking about uh, you know, getting to net zero by 2050, reducing this tax for travel that can definitely be taken by other means is a bit of an eyebrow raiser. Yeah, I think it will definitely raise eyebrows um, from some government departments even. And it does feel as though it's a strange thing where COP26, which I've written about in this week's magazine, you have ministers who are ultimately avoiding flying to Glasgow. They've been advised that it was not a good look. Um, some ministers <laughs> are the train, yet we've just had the chancellor announce that if you wanted to fly to Glasgow, that will soon be cheaper. So yeah. I'm not sure if uh, the people have been speaking to each other or what exactly is going on there, but we will find out and perhaps update you on the next episode. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening.